Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. In addition to her groundbreaking book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, Dr. Barrett has published over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers. A great introduction to her work is her very popular TED Talk, worth checking out. And for all you March of the Penguins fans out there, she's also appeared on Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman. We could go on and on about all the things that she's done as a professor, but what's most exciting to me is that Professor Barrett was kind enough to invite me into her home this past July. And it was there that I had one of the most creatively nourishing discussions I've had in a long, long time. She has recently accepted an invitation to be an advisor to the Good Athlete Project. We are incredibly grateful to have her. And we also hope to use her influence to enhance our research moving forward. Dr. Baird is changing the game in neuroscience, but what she's learned can have an impact on our lives as coaches, educators, or just people interacting with each other. We are incredibly excited to have her on the podcast today. We think you're going to get a lot out of this one. I think it's surprising to a lot of people who do, you know, who either don't know something about neuroscience or who know a lot but don't actually look at the anatomy or actually read outside their own areas, right? That's a good point, yeah. Um, so, but, um, because, you know, I have this talk now that I give and I, that I give in many places where I say, look, you know, your brain didn't evolve for you to think and feel and see. It actually evolved to control your body. Right. That's what brains do. And everything else they do, they do in the service of regulating the body. Right. And if you look at brain evolution, um, you can see that uh, brains evolved uh, when, you know, if you just look at how um, different parts of the nervous system evolved, you can see that basically. you know, before the Cambrian explosion, uh, organisms were just like tubes. Mm-hmm. They, they <laughs> yeah. just sort of floated around in mm-hmm. the sea and um, filtered uh, for food. So they had a motor, a rudimentary. They had a motor system. Fully, they had a full motor system, mm-hmm. but they had no sensory systems at all. Right. And they had no um, what we would call visceromotor systems. So they had no internal systems mm-hmm. to make the body move right like they wouldn't have they had no cardiovascular system no respiratory system no um uh you know no immune system no uh, endocrine system Mm -hmm. really right and it was only because of the evolution of predation Mm -hmm. that um animals had to evolve sensory systems because you know at a distance you have to guess at what is that thing going to eat me should i eat it right um, right and you as your body got more complicated um your brain uh, brains had to evolve and in fact you know internal systems for the body only evolved with sensory systems so right. we were sort of motor first always motor first and the, there are core regions in the brain that when you people who study memory think of them as memory regions and the people who study emotion think of them as emotion regions and the people who study attention think of them as attention regions and the people who study 
the cortical oversight of the autonomic nervous system, think of them as uh, right. visceromotor systems, but they're all of those things. They're, and they're at the core of the brain. And they, do, they have other functions like coordinating uh, uh, neural um, systems in the brain and so on, but, but they are regulating your right. body, your heart, you know, your cardiovascular system, your immune system, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the same brain regions that um, when you um, exercise on a regular basis, these regions are super thick, mm -hmm. super connected, they happen to be the regions that uh, show changes when people start exercising. These are the regions that um, uh, correlate with um, improved cognitive function mm -hmm. as people start to exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and these are also the regions that start to atrophy in right. uh, normal aging, right? They're the regions that show uh, neurodegeneration in Alzheimer's. So. So I love that. If we can we can linger there for a moment, I'd be grateful because, again, normal versus normative. Um, do you think part of that degeneration is because we adopt sedentary lifestyles and those are sort of enhanced as we age? I think it goes beyond that. Actually, yeah. I I think I definitely think that that um, yeah, having a sedentary lifestyle, which I didn't understand for a long time. Like I couldn't I couldn't understand why does it matter if you ride a bike versus um, run. Like why, mm -hmm. why would it matter that you're standing up? And then recently I read an article about how bones, um, um, there's something about bones and their ability to, um, to um, monitor weight bearing, the amount of time that you spend in a weight bearing position. Hmm. So there's something about bones that are, setting the metabolism of the body in relation to how much you are bearing weight which wow. you don't do when you sit right? right and actually when I read that when I wrote this book which took me three and a half years I basically sat on my ass <laughs> right. for three and a half years and I exercise you know I mean I exercise every morning and I have for really since I was in my late teens but mm -hmm. um, uh, I put on probably 15 pounds really yeah and Even I though you were exercising. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's because I was sitting. Right. Sitting, 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 sitting. I was mm -hmm. sitting. I mean, it really took me... That, that was an odyssey writing that book. So. For sure. Um, um, so, it, but I don't think it's just um, the sedentary lifestyle, although I think that's a big, um, a big part of it. I also think it's we... Um, you know, if you were going to deliberately architect an environment that would maximally stress a human nervous system, yeah. it would be this culture. Hmm. Like we, you know, uh, here's what I'll say. You know, we have the kinds of, we have the kind of um, nervous system, the kind of body that needs to be stressed occasionally mm -hmm. and then recover from that stress. Mm -hmm. So when I say stress, what I mean is, you have to, um, so the technical term would be disrupt allostasis, but yeah, the yeah. term in the book would be, you know, you have to throw your body budget out of, out, you have to throw it out of whack, basically, mm -hmm. and then you have to let it recover. Right. So that's exercise. That's like the definition of exercise, right? Yeah. Um, so a big, uh, kind of a big expenditure where you th put your body budget in the red and then you let yourself recover. But imagine, as, so it's really bad though, 
for a nervous system is sort of this slow simmering level of stress which never abates right mm-hmm. where um, you're in a, a social environment where people are evaluating you right. where I mean the worst thing for you know what I always tell people it's like the best thing for a human nervous system is another human hmm. and the worst thing for a human nervous system is another human <laughs> yeah the worst thing if I want to stress someone yeah maximally and fast I just have to make them think that I might be evaluating them negatively not for sure but maybe mm-hmm. right there you go right it's the ambiguity the social ambiguity but um you know we we um you know kids are on on social media 24 7 mm-hmm. incredibly socially ambiguous um you know uh People don't eat properly. Most of what you find in a supermarket isn't even food. It just looks like food, right. tastes like food, but it actually doesn't. Your body doesn't metabolize it in a particularly good way. Right. Um, people don't sleep enough, which is really bad, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. I mean, lack of sleep, totally bad. Um, so it got all of these physical things, and then there's all the social stuff, um, and also just sort of the casual brutality of how people interact with each other these days. Oh, I love that term. Um, the casual it's, brutality. That's it's, right. It's horrible, actually. Yeah. And um, it starts in middle school, as far as I can tell. And teachers don't pay attention. And mm-hmm. they everyone thinks, oh, well, you know, kids will just be kids. But actually, if kids are taught to talk to each other politely and respectfully, they will. And if they're left... That's right. And if, they, if they're left to model what they see on sitcoms, on television, and now, you know, even in, like, serious political, um, you know, spheres... I'm not talking about the content. I'm just talking about the process of how people speak to each other. Right. Just, um, you know, really, it really, really affects a, per- a person's nervous system. It just Such does. Such a good point. That's so. That's so true. And it's funny. There's a, there. Um, you know, the, there are anti-bullying campaigns everywhere necessarily, but it, it seems to me, and, and maybe you'd agree, that it's not people getting shoved in lockers. Like you know those acute high level bouts of bullying, but maybe this this casual brutality of of constant well, I will say subtle that, judgments. I will say that um, bullying is a serious problem. Absolutely, and I certainly don't mean to diminish yeah, that. Yeah, right. So it's a very serious problem, and there are very serious effects from mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that I don't think exer- I don't think um, exercise or, could counter or can totally, can completely totally. counter. Although it will help. I mean, like it will mm-hmm. help stave off what will eventually happen, which is um, atrophy in the hippocampus and hmm. prefrontal cortex. Just, you know, and then, you know, kids, their cognitive function starts to sure. uh, diminish. Um, but, and exercise will help help slow that process. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, the sort of this, the sort of casual brutality of everyday life right now um, is, um, it, it definitely has an effect. And I, and I, I guess I have sort of two things to say about that. One is that, um, I'm not saying that like everybody needs to be nice to each other and all the time, and I'm not saying we're all snowflakes and we'll melt if somebody is like not right. nice to us. But I am saying that we have a nervous system that is designed in a particular way, and we are, um, uh, you know, social animals, and we do regulate each other's nervous systems and impact each other's bodies mm-hmm. in ways that you know um, we are largely unaware of although we um, optimize it a lot of the time so um, if you and I were close 
you all you would have to do is hear my voice and it would have an impact on your heart rate mm-hmm. on your breathing rate I mean we don't have to see each other in right. fact I could just type some words in a text box and send it to you and it could it would affect your breathing rate and your heart rate so we and when we're if you and I if somebody were actually monitoring us right now we mm-hmm. we, we just met what, like 15 minutes ago yeah um, if we like each other and we're having a good conversation and we're communicating well our heart rates will synchronize our hmm. our breathing rates will synchronize our actions will start to synchronize so we are we are designed by evolution to uh, regulate each other. That is actually one of our major adaptive advantages as a species. And there are positive aspects to that and negative aspects to that. Um, and I think, so the degree of stress that, that you know, for example, high schoolers experience is um, not completely related to academics. It's also mm-hmm. the social environment that they're placed in. And, you know, the other thing I'll say, which is really speculative, but I think I stand by it as a justified speculation, which is that we, um, the United States, we all we live in a innovation culture. Our major advantage globally is the fact that we are really innovative as a country. Mm-hmm. Our companies are innovative. In some ways, our countries for the last, our country for the last 30 or 40 years has been, or more than that even, has been more innovative. We've had more intellectual innovations, technological innovations. Hmm. If you, but if your next generation of kids um, is already, um, you know, uh, if their body budgets are already uh, imbalanced or depleted, there's not enough in the bank, so to speak, for them. Yeah. They can't do what they need to do to become innovators, which is to fail. Right. Failing sucks. Yeah. Failing feels like shit. Yeah. You have to be able to tolerate it and right. push forward. Mm-hmm. Learning, you know, right? Learning can sometimes feel bad. Sometimes feeling bad is a sign that something is um, going well, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, exercising, for example, you get to a certain point where it doesn't feel good. Totally. And you have to push through it. You have to tolerate it and you have to push through it, right? Pain, what is the, the, the motto of the Marines, right? Uh, pain is weakness leaving your body. That's right. Well, and, and you actually use the term, uh, you differentiate between uh, discomfort and distress. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But discomfort still feels bad. Right. Totally. And But you, but you can't tolerate the amount of discomfort that you need to in order to to innovate and do something hard and mm-hmm. fail and pick yourself up and keep going to um, you know learn something super hard mm-hmm. um, to learn something super hard that's going to take you six months or a year or three years to, to learn you have to be able to tolerate that discomfort which you can't do if you're already burdened hmm. it yeah. just makes it oh, like yeah. really much harder so I think exercise can give kids a sense of mastery and it can actually have a physical effect of making it slowing down the rate the pace with which their body budgets become depleted but Mm -hmm. the reason why we have I think record high levels of depression I mean depression is a metabolic illness Mm -hmm. when I say that you know psychiatrists sometimes say what do you mean there's no evidence that it's a but there is evidence that it's a metabolic illness cortisol you see cortisol disruptions cortisol is a glucocorticoid that regulates um, glucose uh, metabolism in the body the reason why when you're stressed 
you have a surge of glucose is because you're, I mean, a surge of um, cortisol is because your brain believes that your body needs to do something right. really fast. That's right. Right? So it's a sign, you know, that, um, and many things that we used to think of as being really separate, like can certain cancers and heart disease and diabetes and so on are all metabolic illnesses. They mm -hmm. all have something to do with your body budget being not balanced and your brain not being efficient mm -hmm. in the way um, that it's regulating um, uh, your energy. Um, you know, why do we have an opioid crisis? People don't, right. people start taking opioids because they're in pain, mm -hmm. but they continue taking opioids because they're distressed. Yeah. Um, Can you comment on that a little bit? That, that's actually huge in certain branches of the work that we do. Um, you cannot have the conversation about athletics and not include concussion and, and impact on the brain in that discussion. Um, and there are these, well, we go down that path all day. First of all, there's differentiation. In intensity and duration matter in terms of impact. So the, um, the guys in the NFL, you'd like to think they're at the far end of the spectrum. Even that has become more and more complicated in recent years because a lot of these guys are coming out and saying, yeah, I played 10 years in the NFL. I felt pretty good most of the time. Um, my main concerns now are I had an ankle injury, say. I broke my ankle in one of my last years and since I got addicted to opioids. And that has caused this like ripple effect of, of just everything feels downgraded. Um, because I can't get off these things. Right. There's actually a movement toward um, the, is it cannabinoid? Is that? Yeah, you know, cannabinoids, yeah. Um, but the cannabinoids of their own. I'm sure, know, oh, absolutely. And yeah. that was not, a, I'm not yeah, endorsing yeah. it. No, 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 yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, look, everything that you, anything that you take, anything which you t that you take which affects your, you know, um, internal medicine cabinet, so to speak. Sure. Um, you know, anything which you have a neurotransmitter or a neuromodulator system for, and you take something which affects it. Mm -hmm. It can be potentially some can be potentially addictive, but some things will be more addictive than others. And right. the things that are addictive are the things that are central to the functioning of your nervous system. Right. Opioids serve a central function. I mean, they uh, they they are centrally important to um, the uh, regulation mm -hmm. of key um, systems in your body. So. Uh, you know, people start taking opiates um, because they're in pain, and opiates have this effect of, you know, pain has two parts to it. As you you probably know it it there's the um, what's called the nociceptive information, the information from your um, the tissues of your body. Mm -hmm which are indicating whether there's damage or not. Mm -hmm. And then there's the distress. Right. And so um, the distress is actually um, more associated with um, the, um, I'm trying not to use technical terms here. The distress is, is more associated with what we would, what scientists would call affect which is mm -hmm. um, the sort of simple feelings of pleasantness or unpleasantness, um, of calmness or, or feeling alert and excited um, uh, that are with you every waking moment of your life. Mm -hmm. um, and they occur 
um, primarily this is the way that you feel the you don't so the brain is always regulating it's always running a budget for the systems in your body mm -hmm. and um, it's not budgeting money it's budgeting things like glucose and um, water and salt and all of these things sure. um, and so the analogy that I like to give people is you know when when your brain is gonna stand you up it has to raise your blood pressure before it stands you up mm -hmm. because it has to make sure that oxygen can get uh, to back up to the brain or else you'll faint which is kind of expensive in a biological sense to faint and you could break something and you know sure. so your brain is always trying to um, anticipate the needs of the body in the next moment and then meet those needs before they arise mm -hmm. and the technical term for this is allostasis but um, we, you can describe it as the brain running a budget for the body and it's is it's running this budget your whole life, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and the, there are sensory consequences inside your body because your heart is beating, your, so your heart's contracting and expanding, your lungs are expanding. You've, you know, um, there are all sorts of things going on inside your body and there are sensations um, that are the consequence of that which are represented by your brain. That's sort of how your brain tracks what's going on in your body by those right. sensations. But you can't consciously feel those mm -hmm. most of the time. If you did, you'd never pay attention to anything outside your own skin hmm. ever again. Right. Um, and for anyone who doesn't believe that, I just say, think about the last time that you had GI distress, hmm. where you had burnings in your stomach, or you mm -hmm. had cramps, or you had um, diarrhea, or you had constipation. Yeah. You, When it's really bad, you can't focus on anything because right. all your whole attention is, you know, what's going on inside your body. And unfortunately, it's kind of vague what's going on. Mm -hmm. You can't. You you can't usually. I mean, sometimes you can feel um, your heart beating. But actually, when you feel your heart beating, you're actually not feeling your heart. You're mm -hmm. feeling your heart as it hits against your rib cage. Right. And you're so you're what you're getting is the somatosensory feeling mm -hmm. of the um, you know vibrations of your rib cage. That's how you most people feel okay. their heart. Right. They're not actually feeling that contraction. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I sometimes tell people like, uh, if you don't, if you want to have a really cool experience, go to, um, what used to be called a sensory deprivation tank, right. but now are called float, you right. know, flotation That's tanks. Right. Yeah. But I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's, I haven't. it's amazing experience. So, um, I did it once and, um, I was floating in a pool of like with 2000 pounds of, uh, salt. So it was like the dead sea. Right. Um, it was, you know, and so the ambient temperature is um, the same as your skin, mm -hmm. and you're naked, yeah. and you're in a pool, and you're lying in salt, and you're not moving because the salt's holding you there, mm -hmm. and you have earplugs in, so you can't because the salt would be damaging to you, right. and your eyes are closed, but also the room is pitch black, mm -hmm. so all of your external senses are kind of dampened mm -hmm. and within about two minutes you just can hear this symphony of sounds coming from your own body hmm. it's remarkable how loud it is and how um, you know detailed it is and you it's really like a symphony and it's just it's just um, uh, captivating 
I mean, yeah. I stayed in this tank for an hour and a half. Yeah. And my the my host said to me, you know, most people like they'll you know can do like a thirty minutes and then they get. But I was there for an hour and a half, and they were like, you need to come out now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I was just like so amazed. Yeah, it's um, incredible. It is, but most of the time we don't we don't track what's going on inside our own bodies. Mm-hmm. That way, we track we don't track the specific sensations. Hmm. We track it with affect. Affect right. is like a, a low dimensional representation of what's going on inside the body. Mm-hmm. So you don't know what's happening to your heart and your lungs and so on, but you do know whether you feel great or crappy. Right. Um, and so if the sensations in your body are like high definition television, mm-hmm. affect is like a 1950s black and white TV with really bad reception. Right. Um, you know, you're just, you're only getting the barest minimal signal. Mm-hmm. So pain is affect plus the nociceptive information from the body about tissue damage. Yeah. And opiates work on both, but they more work on the affect. Is that, so yeah. they dampen your distress. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so, and opiates, when you take them, um, feel make you feel they don't make you feel elated like mm-hmm. cocaine they make you feel comfortable hmm. and pleasant mm-hmm. um, and um, it's that's that feeling of comfort um, that um, uh, people are seeking actually hmm. and but you're but you're as I said, you know, your brain is always doing things um, very predictively. It's always anticipating what the body's going to need. And if it knows it's that uh, uh, opiates are going to, an, an external infusion of opiates are going to happen, it adjusts it, the, its internal production of, opiate, of hmm. opioids. Sure. So an analogy would be, do you drink coffee? Absolutely. Do you drink coffee every day at the same time, like when you wake up in the morning? Pretty close, yeah. And if you don't have a coffee one day, do you get one of those coffee headaches well uh i have great control over my inner self i'm just Uh kidding uh i wouldn't say i get a headache but i certainly feel different yeah Yeah. but a lot of people do yeah i have heard this yeah a lot of people do and the reason why is that your brain is anticipating what's right the caffeine and so it's constricting it's um it's actually starting to dilate blood vessels Hmm. because when you drink the coffee it will constrict the blood vessels and it's trying to keep them constant so it anticipates by dilating, and then you drink coffee, and it constricts them back down to the normal level. Whereas if it didn't anticipate, it would just constrict more, and How, it would. Is that that's only acutely? What do you mean only? Acutely? I, I, I mean that like that yeah, only, only acutely. From, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I'm only like, acutely. man, could you hijack that and, and maybe have if you were going to go on a race at nine a.m. Some, you could at hijack some point, it for sure. You could, you could have you coffee at eight thirty or eight forty-five. Yeah, no, and you absolutely just, could. Yeah, wow. exactly, and. But the same thing happens with opioids. Sure. If your brain is expecting an infusion, and it gets that, inf- it's it's sort of um, it's you know it's trying to keep everything in balance, so it'll reduce the amount of um, opi- endogenous opioids mm-hmm. that it produces because it's going to get this exogenous um, infusion, and then it what that's why people become addicted because they don't get that they don't get that comfortable feeling anymore. Right. They just feel 
whatever they were feeling like it's that you know and so then they have to take more Mm -hmm. in order to get that comfortable feeling then they take more and then the brain adjusts to that more right and then that becomes the new normal right and then they have to take more because constantly increasing yeah because what they're going after is that really comfortable feeling that feeling where the distress is gone and they feel comfortable yeah um and uh you know i this is not a science story this is a personal story but you know when i was in labor with my daughter I had to wait to get an epidural hmm. and uh, because I stupidly thought that I might try to, um, you know, go through labor without one. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, that just wasn't going to be possible yeah, based on right. uh, what was happening. You know, I was 35 right. years old when I was uh, in labor. But um, I had to wait. And so they gave me a shot of narcotics. Um, and uh, I had the most remarkable experience which was that um, the nociceptive piece of the pain didn't change at all. Hmm. I was having contractions every two minutes, and I could feel the beginning of a contraction as a, a niggle sensation yeah. and, and feel it grow and grow and grow into this massive thing and then abate and then start again every two minutes. But I didn't care. It's like huh. the distress was gone. I just didn't care. The discomfort was still there. Sure. But the and but the dread mm-hmm. at that little niggle was just gone. Yeah. And I afterwards I um I I thought I mean I remembered the whole thing and afterwards I thought that was remarkable. Like I've never had an experience like that in my life where uh I was able to so neatly separate out distress from discomfort. Hmm. Um and you know, I didn't understand until maybe more than a decade later, because at the time I just, it, you know, when my daughter was born, I was just studying to be a neuroscientist. I, yeah. I, um, you know, I was retraining. Um, I, um, it was more than a decade later before I understood why that, why that would occur. Right. And so people are taking opiates. They may start taking opiates for um, pain, but they continue to take opiates because they're medicating their distress, right. basically. Right. That increasing threshold is one of the scariest parts of addiction. And, yeah. and I think anyone who's had yeah. coffee understands it completely. Yeah, I remember the sure. very first cup I had. I didn't, I didn't drink coffee essentially through college. I kind of wish I had because um, I just like so enjoy sitting out on a day like this, reading a book, drinking coffee. But I remember when I first had one, I, I turned to my mom who got it for me just at, sort of as a treat I think she assumed I I did um, and I was like you feel like this every day this is unbelievable I was right. like bouncing off the walls right. um, now I can uh, potentially drink a pot of it and be just fine um, this prediction idea is really interesting to me yeah um, is there a way to enhance that skill because it, it, it seems like the application for that for uh, somehow disseminating or or more accurately interpreting what's going on might be important. And I say that, I'll, I'll give you an example. Some of my friends are having kids now. Mm-hmm. And if, if a child falls and bumps their elbow, it does seem to me that how one reacts to that might start to uh, develop some sort of yeah, process for sure. of interpreting. For sure. So the way to think about it is, I think, like this, that little infant, a newborn baby, isn't born with a brain... That's like a miniature adult brain. Right, right. Um, 
that brain is not fully formed. It has no model of the world mm -hmm. inside it. Mm -hmm. it. A baby can't regulate its own body budget. It actually just can't. Right. It, 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 you know, it requires somebody else to come and do it or it will die. Right. <laughs> right. Um, it, and part of that, you know, maintaining the body budget of a baby is not just feeding the baby and making sure the temperature is regulated and that the baby is, you know, changed and whatever. It's because we're human mm -hmm. and we um, are a social species. The brain also requires that baby also requires that somebody talk to it, mm -hmm. that somebody cuddle it, mm -hmm. that um, it, that it be held. Uh, for a certain amount of time, right. um, that there's eye contact. Eye contact is really important for even really little babies. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, something as simple as whether, uh, so um, one of the ways that humans, so let me back up and say it this way. So part of what's in your brain now and in my brain now, because our brains are developed, is we can regulate our own attention mm -hmm. that um, there there are internal mechanisms that will um, cause us to orient to look at something mm -hmm. um, or to not look at something to to ignore it right. okay because we can't you can't pay attention to everything in the world right. there's just too much and it's too metabolically expensive to do that so but babies don't have that you know, mm -hmm. so we have a spotlight of attention where we focus our attention on some things and everything else we ignore. Babies have what um, Allison, the developmental psychologist Allison Gottman calls a lantern of attention. They, they can't decide. Their brains don't decide what to pay attention to. They don't know what's important right. and what isn't. How do they learn? They learn by eye contact. Humans do something called joint attention or shared attention, mm -hmm. um, which is that. Um, as, as we're talking, if I just glance that way, you will also glance might, that yeah. way. You'll be like, well, yeah. what is she looking at over there? Mm -hmm. Right, it's just like that. Sure. And so even something simple like with you have an infant, whether you entrain the gaze of that infant, meaning you look at something and you get that baby to look at something, or if the baby looks away from you, you bring the baby's gaze back to you mm -hmm. so that you're the one who's directing the baby's gaze, as mm. opposed to you follow that baby's gaze. Right. You, um, you know, the baby looks at something and then you look at something. Um, if you do predominantly more one way than the other way, mm -hmm. you know, like you, you predominantly in, you know, entrain that infant's gaze to you, or you predominantly follow that infant's gaze, mm. you will have an effect several years later on how well that child will uh, listen to what you say. Amazing. So now think about differences between boys and girls, and um, how. What's the stereotype of a, of a of a little girl? What's the stereotype of a little boy? Yeah. And guess what? Research shows you take an infant and you dress it up like a boy. Mm -hmm. Adults will follow the gaze of that boy more hmm. frequently than if you dress that girl, that little baby, up like a girl. And they'll entrain the gaze of that little girl. Wow. So little tiny things like that can have a huge effect on behavior. So sure. something like how you react when a kid falls down mm -hmm. or whether um, you let a kid sit and struggle with something versus pick it up and do it for them yeah. or are constantly trying to show them how to do things, right? Hmm. Um, 
Um, even something as simple as um, how often you point to something and label it for your kid has a huge effect. So, um, you know, how many words a child knows by the time that they are prepared to go to preschool mm-hmm. will predicts their academic performance sure. many, many, many years out. But what predicts how many words they know? It's how verbal their their caregivers are with them. Hmm. Yeah. How often they, you know, use novel words. And it turns out words, as I write about in my book, words are like really important for really little babies in ways yeah. that you just would not possibly you couldn't possibly imagine would be true. Yeah. Right? But but words are, are how babies learn some concepts, mm-hmm. uh, many concepts actually that are important to um, everyday life as a human in a modern society. Um, uh, and I don't think parents know that. They just kind of do things naturally. But what we do, we, they talk to their babies naturally, but what we do know is that um, if you don't talk to your infant and you don't cuddle your infant and you don't hold your infant and you don't all of the social pieces aren't there if you just clothe the infant and feed the infant mm-hmm. that infant's brain will not develop normally hmm. there are unfortunate real life experiments where you know kids get warehoused in right. in you know the I'm Foster thinking of the R- Romanian orphanages hmm. where all of their physical needs were even I mean for the kids whose even their physical needs were met mm-hmm. and there was no abuse mm-hmm. those kids didn't develop normally because right. they didn't have the social contact that the brain expects a human brain expects in order to develop normally yeah um, and so you know the all the discussion for example about the um, you know illegal immigrants taking children away from their parents um, recently, that mm-hmm. was extremely painful for many of us who understand exactly what's just happening. How bad, right. Just how bad it's going to be for those kids, mm-hmm. and in fact, if if it if it goes on for long enough, and it happens to be at a particularly the wrong time of development, those kids are never going to recover. Yeah. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. It's kind of it's pretty sad actually. Um, pretty sad actually is an understatement. Uh, I wonder, I wonder, well, I don't wonder, and it's probably the, the fuel for a different podcast, why we don't um, take time to consider all of that often enough. I think it's because we think about cog. It's for the same reason why people are surprised when you tell them how important athletics right. is. Um, not, not just in terms of learning discipline and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, learning tenacity, and, right. uh, but also just the actual physical, the protective aspects of the actual physical mm-hmm. um, engagement with the world, right? right? That that has an effect on um, your brain in a pretty significant way. And I think people are surprised by that because yeah, they still right. think that some parts of your brain are for thinking and some parts of your brain are for feeling and some parts of your brain are for moving your body mm-hmm. and they don't have anything to do with each other. That's right. That, that, those things might be more related than I initially thought, actually, because that, I think that's one of the first things that we do when we go into, say, like a professional development workshop is we really peel the scab off the situation, for lack of a better term, and say, like, let's look at each bit of this individually and understand then how it overlaps. Because, well, one of our big taglines is um, sports don't teach life lessons. You know, it's a, it's a cliche that they do. Sports, you know, shooting a basketball alone in your backyard isn't teaching you the sort of conscientiousness that might lead to longitudinal success that 
that uh, a, an athlete or a player involved in your culture under your guidance might be able to. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that takes too much ownership off of um, the models and the professionals in that space. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's something that all professionals, no matter where they are in the leadership hierarchy, um, should do. You know, our, our logo, I don't have my hat on, it's all about intentionality, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, maybe those But do intentionality work. doesn't necessarily mean that um, that you are deliberate every moment of your life. Intentionality right. means that you architect your life in a way that you put yourself into situations mm-hmm. where um, you will have certain experiences, mm-hmm. even in moments where you're not very being very deliberate. Hmm. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, uh, I'll tell you, I dislike exercise. Fair. <laughs> But I you really, do it. I do, I do it. I, I'm quite religious about doing it. I mean, mm-hmm. like, really, I have to be on death's doorstep to not do it. Yeah. Um, and I feel like crappy if I don't do it. Sure. Which I, but I don't get a runner's high. I mm-hmm. don't, you know, I do have a sense of accomplishment if I lift a particularly heavy, you know, I've been, sure. Okay. But I don't particularly like it. And I've been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. But I'm not doing it because I like it. I'm doing it because it's really good for me. Mm-hmm. And I know if I don't do it, um, you know, in the moment I won't feel so good, but later I will really pay the price. Right. So I guess what I, what I mean by that is like when I'm, um, sometimes when I'm lifting weights uh, or I'm running, um, I can sort of be on autopilot in the mm-hmm. sense that I'm not being super deliberate about what I'm doing. Right. I'm following a pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but what was deliberate and intentional was I put myself in that situation. Right. So, right. Um, you know, when you want to, for example, you have a predicting brain and that predicting brain. Um, so, so here's an example from training, um, interval training and, um, um, CrossFit training disrupts the prediction of your brain hmm. on purpose, right? Because once you get into a motor pattern, and your know, motor patterns are good for some things, right? I guess if you're playing football or baseball or yeah. whatever, efficiency, efficiency. Matters. But but if you're exercising to mm-hmm. keep your body super healthy, you don't want it to be efficient. You totally. want to disrupt that efficiency. I I say all the time. Um, Swimming might be the best exercise I can do because I'm so bad at right. in, like inefficient swimming. Right, 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 you know. right. And so my trainer, for example, the things I like to do, right, lift really like deadlift a really heavy weight or whatever. Yeah. He, I, those are like my reward for doing all the other stuff that he makes me do yeah. that I'm really bad at. You know, right, like right. chin ups or whatever. Sure. Um, <laughs> so I think you, knowing that your brain is wired to predict. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that um, it, to us it just feels like we react to stuff in the world but actually mm-hmm. your brain is predicting all the time mm-hmm. and sometimes it predicts well and when it doesn't and you have prediction error that is right. st- stuff that's happening in the world that you didn't anticipate you um, you feel more um, aroused that hmm. you feel more jittery because that arousal is norepinephrine because your brain is going to attempt to learn what right. you didn't anticipate so that you can predict it better next time and that if you know that then you can architect your life a little better because mm-hmm. um you know you can you can put yourself into situations 
where there are a lot of predict where there's a lot of prediction error mm-hmm. because you want to learn something new. Right. So, um, for example, um, people sometimes will say to me, "Well, how do you?" I, I'll, they'll say, "Well, if I want to regulate my emotions better, what should I do?" And I say, "Well, trying to stop yourself from feeling something in the moment and then to feel something else is super hard. It's yeah. super hard for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's really effortful and it's really challenging. And honestly." Most people can't do it. Mm-hmm. But if you know that you have some challenges um, that you're facing and you want to, what you want to do is give your brain, you want to equip your brain with a better menu of choices. Mm. And so, you know, you can like sleep that. more and you can eat better and you can exercise and you can do all those things. But you can also do things like cultivate in the moments where you have a little more energy work hard to cultivate emotions that um, are new to you cultivate awe cultivate Hmm. gratitude um, learn more um, a a broader vocabulary of emotion concepts Hmm. if you practice them they become part of your brain's predictive machinery and then you can use them really easily so for example um, here's a thing that you can do every single day you can take a moment and find something that um, you can feel awe about like you know you can walk on the sidewalk you can see a weed pushing up through the crack of a sidewalk and you can feel awe at the power of nature. Yeah. If you're by an ocean, if you, you look must, up at the sky, yeah. if you, you know, you look at another person, you you look at a... Do you listen to a lot of Tupac Shakur? No. Oh. no. He, he wrote a poem about the a flower essentially breaking through the concrete in L.A. or wherever he was at at the time. But yeah. if you, and at first it feels hard and it feels kind of hokey and you're like, what am I doing? But actually, um, if you keep doing it, um, y- you then can draw on it. Totally. At, at other times, other moments in the day. And you can, in a really stressful situation, you can calm your heart yeah. right down just by focusing your attention differently. Hmm. Right? So I can feel awe at, you know, I'm I'm having a a Skype meeting, a video meeting with somebody across the world, and uh, you know it's really I it's there's full of static and we can't hear each other. I can be really frustrated about that, or I could think, oh my god, this person's like in you know England, right? And I can talk to them, like right. even if it's bad right. reception, it's still mm-hmm. you know amazing, right? Or I can be stuck in traffic on the pike, um, you know, on the highway, yeah. Um, but for a while, there was this billboard, which I wrote about in my book, which I still think about this billboard, this billboard of this adorable little baby orangutan. Hmm. And it was so, like, cute, mm-hmm. this baby, that um, I w- sometimes looked forward to being in traffic because I could just look at this billboard. <laughs> it was just so, it was really, yeah. you know, great. Or... Um, uh, you know, um, for me, as I wrote about in the book, I, um, every August, you know, the crickets get super loud mm-hmm. at night. And I can sometimes hear them inside the house. Hmm. And, you know, late August is, is a nervous time around here. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have to, you know, I'm a professor, so things are heating up at work. And I've had a kid who has to go back to school. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's really anxiety. 
uh, a moment in time which is full of anxiety and it just it's like the the force of nature the power of nature just just paying attention to it for just a few seconds can really affect mm-hmm. how you feel and not just affect you know your subjective experience it's affecting your subjective experience because sure. it's affecting your body because right. there's something actually that's changing right I think absolutely those things are mutually enhancing. We talk in our workshops a lot about um, the perception of stressors and how like essentially, I'd love to hear your thought on this definition, how stress in the way that we think of it in, in terms of professional stress or what it might, whatever it might be, is generally a response to the difference between the perception of the obstacle and the perception of one's ability to manage the obstacle. So if, if you could, if you could like, bring those two things closer together, uh, then, like you said, the physiological response. Well, actually, there's a whole domain of science which defines stress exactly in that exactly. way. So um, you ask people um, how, um, you know, how impactful do they think something will be, right? Mm-hmm. So really how stressful will it be? And um, wh- what do they believe their, um, their resources are to deal with that? Mm-hmm. And if this thing is, if something is about to happen that is... M- that the impact is bigger than their ability, than their resources. Mm-hmm. People typically show a cardiovascular threat response, mm-hmm. which is their heart rate goes up, mm-hmm. cardiac output, their heart rate goes up, but vascular resistance decreases. Mm-hmm. So their cardiac output only goes up a little bit because it's like the heart is working super hard mm-hmm. to try to push blood to the Root, periphery right. when all the blood vessels are constricted. Yeah. So blood pressure goes up. Hmm. And if that happens for long enough, it's really hard on your heart and you develop uh, hypertension and, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in the extreme, right? Yeah. A challenge response is where your heart rate goes up, um, but your blood vessels dilate. And it's because, you know, you're, you're, you may experience the stressor as being very intense, but you also anticipate that your resources to deal with that stressor are sufficient. Yeah. And so your, your brain basically um, prepares your body to act, to, to do something yeah. um, in response, of, you know, like to cope, basically. You talk about that in the book, too. Do you, do you have any methods to enhance that? Is, is it all some version of pre, like mindfulness training, to put it broadly? Is it um, in terms of the reframing, like to go into a test? Is it? No, uh, it's not all mindfulness. No, it's not all mindfulness. I think it's, I, I would say it really, I would say it like this, that your brain is always... Um, it's always trying to figure out what your sensations mean Mm -hmm. so that it knows what to do about them the ache that you have in your stomach when you're anxious Mm -hmm. it's is can be identical to the ache that you have in your stomach uh when you are missing someone when you're hungry um when you don't trust somebody um, when you're um, uh, really excited about something, mm-hmm. um, it, 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 I mean, sometimes when you're anxious, you don't have an ache in your stomach; you feel right. something else. So it, you know, but um, but how how do you know uh, when the ache in your stomach is anxiety or is um, you know excitement? 
you don't know actually because mm-hmm. it's the same ache. Right. Right. So what that right. means is there are that, only so many things the stomach can do. Yeah. Right. So what that means is that's exactly right. So what that means is that you have some control mm-hmm. over um, how you understand what that ache means. Mm-hmm. So right before you go into a test, for example, um, you may feel your stomach aching and you might feel really jittery and most people would say I feel anxious but actually your brain could be just getting your body ready to meet a big challenge mm-hmm. and right it could be that what you're experiencing it could be you have the possibility of experiencing determination yeah instead of that's right um, uh, anxiety yeah and uh, that sounds really hokey but it actually is true it's it actually does work so so at first when you're you, so so if you're preparing for a test and you're in that moment you try to recategorize reconceptualize plot apply different conceptual knowledge to that aching stomach and jittery heart um, uh, it's really hard to do it yeah but if you practice mm-hmm. beforehand Right, um, feeling, understanding your sensations as determination, then you're. It's easier for you to do it in the moment. Totally, and and I guess that's what I meant under the umbrella of mindfulness. mindfulness I wouldn't call that mindfulness actually. Totally I would fair. call that. Some people call it reappraisal in the science. Cognitive reappraisal, absolutely. But so, cognitive reappraisal is applying a different concept mm-hmm. to those sensations to make them meaningful. That's totally. what it means to cognitively reappraise. It means totally. that you're making sense out of your sensations differently mm-hmm. than you did before. Totally. So, you know, my daughter, uh, when she was 12 years old, tested for her black belt in karate. Nice. And she's a tiny thing. Mm-hmm. She was very, you know, very small. Her sensei was a 10th degree black belt. Mm-hmm. Like, how many are there in the country? Five. Really? I don't know. Not that many. Yeah. They're very rare. 10th degree black belt. And he said to the kids, he didn't say to them, don't be anxious. Yeah. He said to them, get your butterflies flying in formation. Love that. And I was like, that is brilliant. That is That brilliant. is a brilliant metaphor. Mm-hmm. Actually, if he had told those kids to calm down... It would have impaired their functioning on the test. Mm -hmm. Similarly, right before a test, like a, let's say a math test or what have you, do you really want, do you really want to feel calm? You don't actually. You want, you want that blood racing everywhere because that has oxygen. That's going to have a, no, what you need to do is you need to reconceptualize, reappraise, make different sense out of your um, sensations. Mindfulness, what mindfulness does is mindfulness helps helps you um, it, it can help you reconceptualize in the following way the, when you're feeling really crappy there are a couple of things that you can do one thing that you can do is you can change your context mm-hmm. you, you can literally get up and move right goes you know get up and move that will change what's going on inside your body, which will change your affect, mm-hmm. um, will change the sensations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it will also give you um, other, there'll be other sources of information in the world that will um, cause your brain to predict differently, so you'll different concepts will come to mind mm-hmm. easily. Sure. But even if you can't move, you can, you can 
change your context by paying attention to different things that are around you that you might not have noticed before. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, maybe you pay attention to how bright it is in the room, or maybe you pay attention to a sound that you didn't hear before, or, um, you know, you can say to people, well, I'm going to, I'm going to make you aware of something that you, that you're conscious of, but you're not aware of it because it's not in the forefront mm -hmm. of your right. awareness. But the minute that I say it, it will be yeah, right. Right. Which is, um, feel the backs of your leg against the seat of your chair mm -hmm. or, um, feel, um, you know, sometimes people can, you know, feel the back, their back against the chair, or they can feel, um, if it's, you know, breezy they can feel the breeze against their skin or you know it these are things that you weren't paying attention to but you focused your attention on them and right. as a consequence your the concepts that come to mind really automatically and easily because of prediction change mm -hmm. that's what mindfulness buys you it buys right. you uh, the capacity to easily shift the focus of your attention um, which allows you to reconceptualize really easily and I guess that's where I was going. Um, so, and maybe I need to find a better word for mindfulness. But a lot in a lot of our workshops, we practice. It, it's mind. They're mindful activities to a point, I suppose. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and I think in in the literature, mindfulness is broken down into open monitoring and focused attention. We're more interested in the focused attention and essentially walking the paths in the brain. For a lot of kids, what we do it might look like this: if you're in the middle of a crowded lunchroom, feeling slightly overwhelmed, and some budges in front of you or something like that, elbows you out of your way, we ask people to essentially walk the path of that situation beforehand so that um, when they're in the situation, they'll be able to reappraise. Right, and what they're doing is they're, you're teaching them how to, how, to, um, how to predict better. Yeah, how to predict better. You know? That's right. Yeah. So when you, when you imagine things, that there's a, you know, in science we call it simulating, but it's basically, simulating is basically the same as imagining, mm -hmm. or, you know, they, in science we might call it perceptual inference, but... Um, that you're making an inference about something perceptual, mm -hmm. but basically what you're doing when you imagine um, is you're um, you're laying down new paths or you're mm -hmm. strengthening paths right. for prediction. And similarly, ruminating does the same thing. Totally. So you, that's why you really don't want to do it because it's uh, you know it makes it harder later mm -hmm. to stop. Right. Uh, having those thoughts. To switch paths. Yeah. One thing that's been really yeah. effective for us is we, when we describe the brain as a forest, you just imagine like laying the, the first yeah. time you yeah, mentioned how exactly learning right. is hard. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, yeah. the ruminating is beating down a path yeah. very well. Exactly. And, and not that's being exactly able to right. From it. So in my TED talk, this is exactly the thing that I talk about. It's exactly, is I didn't, the, I didn't have forest. that great, I didn't have a great oh. a forest analogy. But yeah, basically, I talk about learning new, um, like training your brain to, uh, learn new predictions so that mm -hmm. they come very easily and that's what it means to be an architect of your experience that mm -hmm. you I love that you're term. deliberate but not always deliberate in the moment what you want is to be deliberate at other times so that in the moment everything can just proceed very automatically mm -hmm. at very with a very a sort of energy efficient way for you mm -hmm. right there are times when being deliberate is like an investment in how you will feel in the future right Basically, that's a good way to look at it, right? It's not a constant reappraisal of everything all the no, time. No, you'd be Talk exhausted about if you were. Metabolic efficiency. That's, yeah, you'd be exhausted if you were doing that. Absolutely. Um, 
I wonder if I, I've, been, I've been trying to um, find the most compelling link to athletics. And one thing that occurs to me in this prediction uh, is like, there's so we've worked with so many good coaches, so many incredible coaches. But I think within that experience, which is always full of novelty, at times chaotic, you know, changing. Mm-hmm. There's so many variables in a situation mm-hmm. of, of any mm-hmm. any game or practice. Um, I wonder if it is probably natural or normative for a for a coach to default to the predictions that I'll give you. Um, athlete A uh, doesn't care. You know, athlete B isn't excited enough. You know, you hear things like that. There's certainly a danger in that, right? Because you you risk pushing people to the side. Does that feel like a valuable thing um, to be aware of? You know, I, I, absolutely. Yeah. I think anybody who works with anybody, should, anytime should you're know, around right. other people, should know. I mean, but particularly around, you know, when for coaches and teachers and parents and mm-hmm. anyone who's working around young kids, you know, you have to be really careful because mm-hmm. physicians. This is also true that you, the words that you speak, communicate ideas. To, you know, I can communicate an idea to you just by saying a single word. I have a set of features in my mind that I have in mind, and uh, I don't have to list all those features out to you. I just can say a single word, and that will, in your mind, conjure a set of features. Right. That's that's how language works. That's why it's so efficient. Right. Um, but what that means is that um, that we are, you know, you you are constructing your brain constructs your experience by using its past knowledge past information to make sense of the present sensory information Mm -hmm. so the way that i explain this would be and so i just want to back up and sort of lay this out and then i'll answer your question so i have to say this before i can answer your question um you know your brain is faced with what we call a reverse inference problem it constantly has to guess at the causes of sensations when all it has is access to are the effects. So there's a flash of light. What is that flash of light? It could be anything, right? It could be many things. Well, what, what is it? Um, you have an ache in your stomach. Well, what it could? What, what's the cause of that ache? Well, it could be many things. So all your your brain receives sensory inputs through the sensors of the body, mm-hmm. but it ha- so all it has is the effects. It needs to guess at what the causes are so that it knows what to do. Right. Is that flash of light um, a friend? Is that flash of light a car that you need to jump out of the way of? Right. Like, what is that flash of light? So what it does is it uses its past experience. Right. In a situation like this, the last time I was in a situation like this, right. when I was surrounded by this array of sensations, mm-hmm. what was happening? Right. What's the likelihood that that's happening now? Um, so it's not asking what is that ache in my stomach. It's asking what is that what what is this ache in my stomach similar to mm-hmm. the last time right. that I was in a situation like this. So that's right. what it's doing all the yeah. time. It's like okay. if if it was nighttime and all of a sudden lights pop out and yeah. you're crossing the street, you don't think yeah. airplane. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so when a, a coach looks at a kid's face or a body posture or a tone of voice, that coach isn't. Uh, the coach's brain isn't. When a coach looks at a kid's face or body posture or tone of voice, here's a tone of voice. The coach's brain isn't thinking, isn't isn't asking, what is that? It's mm-hmm. it, what does that mean? 
It's like, what is that like? What is that like from the last time that I saw this kid or I saw a kid do this in this Mm -hmm. situation? And of course, none of this is happening consciously or deliberately. It's just happening kind of automatically. The brains basically use their past to make guesses about the present. Mm -hmm. Actually, the way I would say it is brains use their past the past to make guesses about the immediate future, which becomes the present. Fair, fair. (laughs) And so a coach or a boss or a teacher or uh, a doctor or whatever, um, right now you and I um, are guessing Mm -hmm. at what facial movements mean and what body postures mean and what um, vocal changes mean. We're guessing, guessing, guessing. We don't know, we're guessing. Right. And we might guess well or we might guess poorly. But that guessing has an effect on the other person. Mm-hmm. And especially when a kid doesn't actually know. Most right. kids don't know why they do what they do. Their brains aren't formed enough yet for them to have that kind of insight. Mm-hmm. If you tell them, if you label them, they will you are helping to construct their experience in the moment. If they don't have a concept of themselves as lazy, you can really easily give them a concept of themselves as lazy. If they, um, but if they don't have a concept of themselves as burdened by something and therefore they're tired, Mm -hmm. um, you can give them that concept. You know, um, my daughter, from the day she was born, seriously, around... 4.30 4.30 in the afternoon would get super cranky until about 6.30 every bloody day. Really? And at first, when she was a very small infant, the doctor said, she's, she's, she's colicky, hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, but eventually I realized that she's just actually her, she, for whatever reason, her body budget becomes really imbalanced around that time. Hmm. And, she just needs uh, a little soothing and then she'll be fine actually and what that soothing looks like is really different at different times Mm -hmm. so she'd come home from school different times of her life so she'd come home from school um, let's say when she was uh, or let's say when she was a little girl like three or four years old and she'd become really cranky I wouldn't say to her oh sweetie your body budget's unbalanced (sighs) you know I'd say well the cranky fairy is visiting you Uh. Hmm. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna welcome the cranky fairy? Or are you gonna you gonna try to tell her make the cranky fairy go away? Like hmm. what? You know. So that became part of her language. And later on, uh, you know, when she was um, in middle school or high school, I would say to her, you know what? You're just uh, you know this is just. She actually came up with this phrase. You're just having the emotional flu right now. You're just huh. feeling crappy, but nothing's wrong. Yeah. It's just, you know, have an orange. Mm. You know, have some water. <laughs> yeah. You know, have a, you know, have a piece of fruit. Have, you know, um, have a snack. And I, I wasn't telling her to eat her feelings. I was, yeah. she yeah. was really, she had had a long day. Yeah. She, Change her state. You, you know, and she, she, maybe she had just come back from karate or maybe she had just come back from piano lessons or whatever. But, you know, she was tired. And uh, she'd been up really, you know, around here, you, high school starts at like 7.30 in the morning. Mm. She was exhausted by that right. point and she right. needed a little sustenance to get her through until seven o'clock when dinner would be. Right. So she'd have something and then she'd feel better. Yeah. Um, Hanger is a very real thing. Exactly. But 
But what if I had said to her every time, well, you're a bad girl. Yeah. You're a bad girl. Mm -hmm. Well, don't be so crabby. Well, Mm -hmm. don't, you know, you know, don't be so lazy. Well, don't be, you know, she Mm -hmm. would develop an image of herself as somebody who is, yeah. And there seems to me that there might be, to say something's wrong with you, to um, obviously that's one really bad end of that spectrum. To say, to, to fully indulge a mood, if that makes sense, to say, oh, you know, is everything okay? Like, every single day would probably be on the other end of that spectrum. And For where sure. you sit is kind of in the middle. It's 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 an analysis. Yeah. It's like, let's look at that thing, acknowledge it, and name it, and... Yeah. No, for sure. And I'm actually, for sure, and, and, uh, you know, I mean, I will say a a couple of things, you know. Sometimes my daughter, my daughter, when she was eight years old, once said to me, I just want a little empathy. She said it just like that. Like, I just want a little empathy. I was like, because, you know, I'm always sort of giving her these. Yeah, yeah. And this may sound like... uh, you know, so so it's. I think it's sometimes a little empathy actually is really fair, what someone fair, needs. Fair. I'm always more on the instrumental end of things, I guess. But yeah. But I and and maybe you know some of your listeners might think, well, this just sounds like common sense, and maybe it is common sense. Um, but it's common sense that's undergirded by a hell of a lot of neuroscience and and, and, and underutilized and, and whether and we recognize it or not, we don't use it as yeah. often. And as we sometimes should. it's not common sense because yeah. you know. Uh, w- Women over the age of 65 die more frequently from heart attacks than men do. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why is they go to the hospital mm-hmm. and they and their and the emergency room physicians think that they're anxious instead mm-hmm. of in the initial stages of a cardiac event. So co-constructing someone's experience mm-hmm. um, can have a huge effect. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to the doctor a couple of years ago because I was feeling really fatigued. Hmm. And... Um, you know, his first question to me was, are you stressed? And I was like, well, you know, I run a lab with 20 people in it and yeah. I'm, you know, millions of dollars of grant money a year that I, you know, we have, yeah, so am I stressed? No more than usual. Right. I mean, yeah. it's just, you know, um, and he's like, well, may, you know, maybe you're depressed. I'm like, well, I don't think I'm depressed. Hmm. I, I don't think I meet the diagnostic criteria for depression. Sure. Maybe you're depressed and you don't know it. Hmm. I really think that's, I'm just really yeah. tired and yeah. maybe I'm, I don't know, perimenopausal. Maybe yeah. I'm, I'm losing estrogen and maybe that's making me tired. Like, sure. can we talk, you know, but he, I, I, but I was thinking to myself, what if I wasn't a neuroscientist and mm-hmm. I didn't know all these things and he said, maybe you're depressed. What would I do? I would start looking at all the things wrong in my life that, and I would have walked out of there with antidepressants. Right. And, you know, so I think that we, we have this effect on each other. Mm -hmm. Um, We, and it, but it's particularly, um, we can help each other make sense of our affect and our sensations in a way that's more productive or that's less productive. And we can do it just by talking to each other. And it's more apparent, I think it's more, the impact is more apparent when there is a power differential between the two people. Hmm. So you and your physician, um, you and your coach, Mm -hmm. you and your teacher, uh, you know, and what that means is you, you have an impact on what people feel you have an impact on whether that kid feels an ache in their gut as anxiety or as evidence that they are 
I'm an imposter or that they are just, uh, you know, need to get their butterflies in for me, flying information because they have a big task coming up and you have confidence that, that they can, uh, that they can meet that, that, that challenge. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's empowering. I think the best part of this message before we, um, before we move on to what we call the lightning round is, um, yeah, we, we need to finish up soon. So fair. Yeah, yeah. 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 Is, um, how empowering that message, the, the, the sense of control. Oh, you know, and I know that you said this, and anyone who's familiar with your material knows this part of it. But um, you know, it, it, it's not a flood of things that are predetermined that overwhelm us, and there's there's only and all we can do is ride out the storm. There is a sense of agency in this, and when we talk about something like emotion, so often we think about it as just something that happens to us, um, rather than something you know that we might have a voice in. Uh, so I think it's, I I will say this publicly. Thank you very much for the work I think it's necessary Um, okay lightning round are you ready for this sure are you sitting down I'm sitting down I knew it Uh, okay and this is just to get people more familiar with some of uh, who you are as a person Mm -hmm. first concert you ever went to super tramp go on I uh, I was 12 years old 12 years old at super tramp that's impressive maybe it's 13 12 or 13 yeah 12 or 13 maybe I think it was 13 goodbye stranger is that one of theirs? Uh, yeah. Yeah. But um, you know, my fir- the first Super Tramp album I ever listened to was um, Crime of the Century. Okay. Yeah, and then just after that, I just loved them. Very cool. Yeah. They're pretty cool. Yeah, they are really cool. Um, favorite book or movie unrelated to the field? Favorite book or movie? Well, the I have a lot of favorite movies. So it's hard. It depends totally on what fair. what you know. I, just so you know, when I'm asked that question, I have the same response. I yeah. say, like, I, I can tell you what movies have been most impactful. Yeah. What, the one I've watched more often than others. Or yeah. So yeah. however you want to interpret it. Okay. Well, what movie have you watched more than any other? You're not going to let It's going to be strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. The original from way back. <laughs> I watched. It was so... There's something about... Um, do you remember the original before the new remake? <laughs> there was something about the nostalgia... Uh, it was in two parts on VHS and, mm-hmm. and the first sort of episodes where mm-hmm. the there was I, I saw it at the right time in my life mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. just scary enough that it mm-hmm. locked me in throughout the whole time and there was this like this narrative about being young and making friends that, that just appealed great. to me right away okay whenever I'm sick I watch The Princess Bride so good uh, there's also a movie called um, oh my, what is the name of it I'm not even sure that I. It'll come to me probably too late, but it's a, it's a, it's the oh, Shadowlands. It's hmm. the story of C.S. Lewis, hmm. and um, he meets this American woman, and he he lives this. You know, so C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, you know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the mm-hmm. whole Narnia series, and so I had a fantastic, you know, imagination. But he lived this really socially very kind of constrained Mm -hmm. life very lonely very narrow and then he meets this american very loud (laughs) woman uh, very kind of you know um, bubbly effervescent woman and they fall in love and then she dies of cancer oh jeez and it and so he's left caring for her son Hmm. i'm getting choked up about it yeah just think about it so i love this movie i don't know why i love this movie but i just love this movie i love I just love how they, these people who are completely different, right? And and they just, 
love each other and then he loses her but he finds but he knows he has to take care of this boy mm-hmm. um, who, and he does you know and it's just a very very touching story and I, I don't know how many times I've seen it many many times and I you know and then I think the other there are particular scenes in um, Lord of the Rings the trilogy mm-hmm. in fact sometimes my, with my husband I'll just um I'll just say, you know, I, I want to, I just want to see this scene and we'll just put on a particular scene like, yeah. you know, in Rivendell or, um, you know, just, there are just particular scenes that I, like, I really love. Um, and so I'll just watch visually those. exciting or no, I think it's because of the story, Yeah. you know? Um, yeah. so, um, and I love the star Wars movies and I, and we, we're also really big fans of superhero movies in nice. this house hmm. so I know it sounds like you know as a professor that I have all these very lofty um, you know foreign films but actually and I'm sure I could think of a couple of those but sure. uh, but those are those are some of the ones that that come to mind um, and for books it's harder for books but because um, there are many 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 books sure uh, but um, there if you had to have a cup of coffee on the porch and read a book right now, what would you go for? There's a book um, um, about, um, it's called Major Pettigrew's Last Stand. I guess it's, in, so it's a, a novel about a man, a British major in England who is a widower and falls in love with a widow who is Pakistani, runs like the, the, the super, the like supermarket the corner market and um it's just a lovely love story yeah i really like love stories it's a lovely love story again two people that you wouldn't that you wouldn't think would be together but they um and they they challenge all kinds of stereotypes in this book it's but it's sort of about that and it's just but it's lovely. It's touching and it's sweet. And mm. um, uh, there's another one. Or, or I would read the storied life of uh, A.J. Fierke, which is about a curmudgeonly bookseller who one day this little girl just plopped in his store mm. and abandoned there. And he basically adopts her and raises her. And it's just all about his story and her story. And mm. um, it's it's just. So it's funny, but it's like very touching and it violates a whole bunch of stereotypes. You know, like he's this really curmudgeon guy that no one likes. Hmm. And it turns out he had this really big tragedy in his life. Um, but, um, but he becomes beloved hmm. to his community um, because of how he takes care of this yeah. little girl and adopts her and whatever. So it's just a really sweet story worth checking out I sure. love stories like that yeah. I might have a guess at this one um, but what's one daily habit that you couldn't do without well I uh, I, I exercise every morning for an hour yeah. I lift weights or I run sprints or I do whatever whatever my trainer whatever, whatever my trainer tells me to do he I or got, she he yeah. I always tell him you know you're the only one who can you're the only one who can tell me what to do, and I'll actually do it. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I like that. Uh, yeah, so 
I really, um, I can do without it, but I, I, for now, it, it, it takes its tool. Sure. What's really funny too, I think is, um, you know, I, I don't like exercise and I never have, and I didn't start exercising because I wanted to be healthy. Mm-hmm. I started to exercise because I'm vain. Hmm. <laughs> that's all right. However one enters the space, that's but, okay. But the interesting thing is that I think that vanity saved me to some extent because, uh, you know, it kept me exercising even before I knew what the science had to say. Well, listen, I, I think that's, I, I personally would never judge that. That's one thing that we try to do. We're the Good Athlete Project, not because we think we're necessarily on the side of the moral right. We want to capitalize on someone's motivation to be a good athlete yeah. because that yeah. might be the most powerful thing yeah. in an adolescent's yeah. life yeah. and then start to structure yeah. A, yeah. Uh, a path for them. I mean, I didn't start lifting good. weights because I thought, wow, I want to be able to lift heavy weights and feel a sense of accomplishment. I right. just started to do exactly. it because, right. Right. you know, it was going to get me something. And then I realized, oh, my God, I really this is really fun. You That's know? right. That's right. That's yeah. fair. The final question. Advice to a future you, so a future leader looking to go down a similar path. Um, read broadly. Don't just read in the field that you're interested in. Read broadly because mm-hmm. you can learn from other fields. Mm-hmm. Don't let anybody tell you what to, what what's true. Like figure it out for yourself. Mm. So sometimes students people ask students will say what what piece of advice do you have? And I'm like don't read an introduction and don't read the discussion sections of papers. Just read the method section. Read the results. Decide for yourself what they say. Hmm. Don't take somebody else's word for it. Not even mine. Figure it out for yourself. Talk to your colleagues. Talk to your friends. Talk to people who don't agree with you. But in science, you cannot take somebody else's word for it. You really must figure things out for yourself. Of course, at a certain point, you have to, when you don't know very much, you have to take somebody else's word for it for a little while. But you, you know, um, my whole time as a scientist, uh, and this is probably true because. I have retrained many times in, you know, I started off as a clinical psychologist and then I moved to social psychology and then to cognitive psychology mm-hmm. and, you know, th- then eventually to, to cognitive neuroscience. Now I'm, you know, studying, you know, evolutionary biology and engineering and learning all sorts of things. It's, you know, when I, I always am, uh, I always seem to be in the position of, seeing things slightly differently than other people yeah and that when i was much younger made me feel like i didn't fit anywhere that i didn't belong anywhere that i was an imposter that i um that i just you know didn't see things the way everybody else sees things and that made me feel lonely and disconnected Hmm. but i think what i've come to realize is it's a benefit in some ways mm-hmm. because uh, I don't have preconceived notions about a lot of things mm-hmm. and uh, I can keep my mind open and sometimes seeing something differently than someone else is the beginning of uh, you know not just a shift in your in your thinking but you 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 kind of cultivate a path that isn't there for other people mm-hmm. to follow, you know, 
Um, so, and listen closely to the people who do not agree with you. Hmm. Because they're not stupid. They're not idiots. Right. They might, you might not ever agree with them, mm-hmm. but at the bare minimum, they'll make you work harder to hone your own, uh, right. you know, your own message and your own, uh, and test your own ideas. Yeah. And they'll reveal to you the flaws in your own thinking in ways uh, that uh, you might not have access to otherwise. Right. You know? well, but, I think it's great advice. Uh, and have tenacity. Yeah. Don't take your affect too seriously. Don't take your affect too seriously. You feel like like shit, push forward anyways. Yeah. You know? I love it. I feel like potentially sports could be a a teaching platform for some of those things. I I absolutely think it it is. Absolutely. This week's episode is brought to you by Remind Recover. Remind Recover is a supplement that helps athletes support brain health. Similar to how you drink a protein shake to help your muscles recover after a workout, Remind Recover has been scientifically formulated to give you the nutritional building blocks to help support healthy brain function. I am a huge fan of Remind Recover. It is as close to the science as any supplement I've seen, and feel free to check out their website for more. It's remindrecover.com. And when you go there, if you want to place an order, and I recommend it, use the code GOODATHLETE for a discount on checkout.